we're going to team teach tonight, so we're just going to kind of go back and forth a little bit. But I have a question for you guys. How many of you, as a kid, like to do lemonade stands? Yes? Raise your hand high if you did a lemonade stand. Okay. How many of you, like now as an adult, if you see a lemonade stand, you're like, yes, definitely stopping, giving those kids my quarter. Only one? Two? Okay, yeah, you raise your hand. You guys are cruel. Yeah. Cruel. Oh, my God. I gosh. feel like if lemonade stands... If they're important to you as a kid, you, like, realize as an adult, like, yes, you need to stop. Invest now Invest in the future. Invest now okay. in the future. So my kids, you've all met them, they love lemonade stands. Like, so much that we have, like, probably about, I don't know, five or six variations of a theme of lemonade stands because I had to cap them. We live in a fairly, like, quiet street, and so there's not even very much traffic or people around. But they will do anything to get people's attention to buy lemonade or to make money. So we've they've sold lemonade um, when people didn't come to them. They've taken it to door to door. Um, there was a point where Ravel, um, I, I basically capped them. And it's like, no more lemonade stands. People are tired of your lemonade. So they're like, well, what? Can we sell something? And I was like, well, pitch me your idea. And so Ravel's like, well, can I, can I sell carrots? And I was like, well, you could try. So she goes to the garden and picks these. We can't s grow carrots because the clay, like the soil is so clay-like. We get like these really nubby, terrible carrots. So she picks these carrots. She chops them up. Um, she makes a little sign, carrot coins, five cents. Um, and then she came to me and said, like, Mom, I need a marketing strategy. She was like four, guys. <laughs> and so she's like, I need, I need your phone. And I was like, why do you need my phone? She's like, I've got to play some music because, you know, I've got to, like, attract people to my booth. And, of course, like, no one's really stopping for her carrot coin stand. So she's like, I'm taking it door-to-door, -door, Mom. So she, like, <laughs> grabs her wagon, and she's going door-to-door. -door and, you know, our neighbors are so nice. They're, like, helping her and, you know, bu buying carrot coins. There's another time where, um, again, I had capped it. So they said, can we sell iced coffee? And I don't – this was crazy. This – normally there's one garbage man, okay? But for whatever reason – it, the Lord was blessing my kids that day because there was three garbage men. I don't know if it was training day or what, but the garbage truck comes up and he buys out all their iced coffee. And I'm like, these kids are going to be rich, you know? This week, we had a new iteration of lemon stand, lemonade stand that I had never seen before. <laughs> People were driving by and my kids are standing on the corner screaming at them, buy the rubber gloves! <laughs> and there's this college student, we live really close to campus, so there's this, you know, I assumed he was a frat guy, he's doing his jog, and then he, like, sees my kids, and he's like, wah! And he's got ear, AirPods in, so he, he, like, comes over, and he's like, guys, I don't have any money with me, and they're like, that's okay, just take it for free, just take the water balloon! And so he's, like, so nice, he's like, just, he's like, okay, so he takes one, so then, like, five minutes later, this nice college student comes back around with money for my kids. He doesn't have the water balloon anymore. I don't know what he did with it. But, um, <laughs> but it is amazing what my kids will do and the lengths that they will go to to get people's attention. And last night, Jeremy did a fantastic job introducing us, and he was talking about how there are so many voices out there who are crying out for your attention. They're coming at you with worldviews. They're coming at you with culture and ideas and what way is right. 
And it is hard to discern. We're caught with a choice. The two Derricks, right? <laughs> Jeremy, do you have anything to add to sort of recap us here? Derek has a silly face. He no, I'm just joking. Just joking. That's your husband. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, I think this, this is it, right? This is the choice of Proverbs, right? Uh, in all seriousness, we have the choice of wisdom or the choice of folly. Um, and we talked a little bit about Lady Wisdom last night. Uh, there's a fourth character that I briefly, briefly mentioned named Lady Folly. And so Proverbs 8, big speech about Lady Wisdom. Um, and then Proverbs 9, Lady Folly gets a chance to s speak. You guys got your notes? Yeah, you got you your notes out? Notes? We're going to get, we're going to get like theological <laughs> right now and then we'll, we'll slowly move into heart stuff, yeah? Okay, so Proverbs 9 starts with the call of lady wisdom and then it ends with the call of lady folly. Proverbs 9, 1 through 4. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. Proverbs thirteen sixteen. This is Lady Folly speaking. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who come, let all who are simple come to my house. Okay, so I don't know if you noticed, but there's some like similarities between these two calls, right? Can some of you like, let's have like four people, if, if we can, shout out what do you notice about like the similarities of these calls? Okay, they both sit, who said that? Raise your hand. Gotcha, Caden, they both sit at the highest point of the city. Okay, what else? They bo both cry out, call out, yeah. And what do they call? Like they call the same exact line, right? Let all who are simple come to my house. What other like things do we notice? It doesn't ha just have to be similarities, but what are some differences? Nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's really good. I also think it's interesting that Folly says she is simple and she cries out to the simple. That's just, I don't know the point of that, but that's just an interesting observation. Okay, so Caden uh, hit, Caden had the right answer, let's be honest. No, I'm just joking. Uh, you guys all did a great job. Uh, but the thing I want to focus on is that they both call out from the highest point. Um, what is the significance of something being in a high place in the Bible? Okay, so in the ancient Near East context that the Bible was written in, um, the places of worship were on the highest points in a city, right? So an example of this would be the temple in Jerusalem, um, where Yahweh, the God of Israel, was worshipped. But also, the highest place in a city was where the temples were, where idols were worshipped. And these in the Bible are called high places, Okay, so that's like this phrase that you need to like, as you read the Old Testament, just be aware of. We'll get to that in a minute. 
So what does this mean about the call of wisdom or folly? This means the call of wisdom is a call to worship God. And then the call of folly is a call to worship idols. So the struggle between worshiping God or idols is the primary struggle of the Israelites. The Israelites are God's chosen people. And so oftentimes, the Israelites would let idolatry fester in their people. And every once in a while, in the books of Kings and Chronicles, there would be these moments where the kings would humble themselves, turn to God, and try to have these like points of personal and corporate reformation. Um, and they would burn the altars to Baal, or Baal, and burn the Asherah poles. Yeah. You know what makes me think of? Makes me think of cheese. Nice. Cheese. Yeah. Yep. Okay, growing up, what did your family do if a block of cheese got looking like that? Okay, like, oh, I heard a few things. Okay, well, how many of you would eat cheese that looks like this? Any of you? <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> let me tell you about my father. Um, my dad does not like to waste food or money. So I tell you, when that good old block of Tillamook started to get a little green and hairy, my dad would just get the knife out and he'd just start cutting, right? And he would just keep cutting and cutting until there'd be like this little like charcuterie size piece of cheese left, right? And that's what we would eat on our sandwiches. And I always thought, oh yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Until like recently I saw a TikTok video and this lady was talking about cheese and mold. And she was like, oh no, no, bad, bad, bad. She was like, mold has spores. And like in the cheese, there's like this intricate web of like mold spores. So even in the middle of that little piece that's left, that looks good, you're still eating mold. She's like, it's dangerous. So. <laughs> makes me want to eat <laughs> cheese so much, right? Like, <laughs> oh boy. So here's the thing. Even if you cut all that mold off, it's going to come back and make you sick. And that's what the kings, the Israelite kings were doing. They would cut off the big stuff and be like, it's fine, but they wouldn't go far enough. So I did a quick Bible gateway search, and I put in the phrase, the high places, and it comes up 59 times, 59 in the Old Testament. So look at this screenshot from the search I did. Look at the parallelism. The writers of the Old Testament are so, like, amazing. There's this parallel phrase, the high places, however, were not removed. The high places, however, were not removed. And so over and over and over again, we see that even the kings that were like decently godly, they failed to root out idolatry in its entirety. The kings were always keeping back just a little bit. And then this root of idolatry became the thing that continuously sucked the Israelites back into sin. Yeah, that's great. So I don't know about you guys, but I like personally don't struggle with idolatry in the same way that the people in the Old Testament did. You know, like Jessica, do you do you like to struggle to worship the Asherah poles? Um, more like the Baals. Oh, the Baals. Okay, okay. Well, I'm so glad you're here. We have um, this giant argument because some people say Baal, some people say Baal. Yeah. So like, which are we going to call it? And we just couldn't decide. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. So we're, <laughs> we're going to just call it both. Um, and then let, let you discern what is correct. <laughs> okay. So I don't, I personally, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I don't struggle worshiping anything Baal. Um, so what is idolatry? Good question. Idolatry. Thank you, Jessica. 
I think it was yours. Okay. <laughs> Idols are functional saviors that we turn to for what only God can provide. Idols are functional saviors that we turn to for what only God can provide. Found this quote. It's a really good quote. Here we go. Idolatry is anything we serve, love, desire, trust, fear, and worship apart from God in order to give us love, joy, peace, freedom, status, identity, control, happiness, security, fulfillment, health, pleasure, significance, acceptance, and respect. That's a quote. That's like, that's like quote, Jessica. Okay. Um, take a picture of that. Don't <laughs> write it all down. So, you, like, you might be asking, that's, like, cool and all, but, like, like <laughs> it's like taking a Saturday, going to a coffee shop, having pumpkin pie uh, and, like, a pumpkin spice latte. Is that idolatry? Great question, Tim. Um, not quite. Uh, I think the nuance is it becomes idolatry when we use those things as a replacement for God. It's kind of like, um, have you, like, had a really bad day, hypothetically, um, and instead of, like, I don't know, talking to Jesus about it, you go and numb yourself with Netflix? All the time. Thank you for your honesty. Okay. <laughs> or, so you might be going to Netflix to deal with your pain instead of going to God. That might be idolatry. Or maybe you are enslaved to what people think about you. People's opinions offer you identity, security, and worth, and that can actually only come from God. Or it could be grades. It could be relationships, entertainment, political affiliation. These things all offer us something that can come to replace God in our lives. So here's my question to you. I d it's not on the slide, but I want you to write it down. What is the high place of your heart that needs to be removed? What is the high place of your heart that needs to be removed? Like with your dad and, and <laughs> cheese, he kept cutting away the moldy parts because he was in trying to save something. I think sometimes with the idols in our lives, we're all like, man, my phone is my idol, so I'm going to set a screen time reminder. I'm going to set this. I'm going to set that. We try to chop it away, trying to save the idol where we might just need to let it go. What little piece of your heart are you keeping from God? It's really good. Good. So... The driving question and the context and the backdrop for the whole book of Proverbs is essentially it's a call away from idolatry and a call back towards God. So we could even like give Proverbs a little subtitle. We could call it getting rid of idolatry for dummies or something. So we're going to look into a specific chapter in Proverbs tonight. We're going to read through cha uh, chapter three in Proverbs. And we're going to look at how does the, the writer of the Proverbs address getting rid of idolatry, okay? So you can either turn there in your Bibles or your phones, or it will be on the screen too. So Proverbs chapter 3. Here we go. There is a typo 
on this. We didn't fix it. Oh, it's whoops. It's okay, fine. it's on there kind of twice. There's a couple of phrases. You'll, you'll figure it out, okay? So this is the, the father talking to his son again, okay? So it says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, and then you'll win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. All right, so what kind of heart posture is the father calling the son to? He keeps saying things like, keep my commands in your heart. He says that twice. I think on here he says it four <laughs> times. Um, keep my commands in your heart. Do not forget my teaching. Bind love and faithfulness to your neck and write them down on the tablet of your heart. And so the word that comes to mind when I think of that picture is the word devotion. What do you think of when you think of the word devotion? You might think, I don't know, one thing we thought of was how people get <laughs> when fall is in the air. Yeah? And I think the next slide has an image of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Um, I saw this. I saw this comedian on Instagram, and he was like, people love fall so much, and they're like in fall, and then they travel to a place with better fall. <laughs> like, does anyone, that strikes anyone to their core? Like, I travel to get better fall, you know? <laughs> um, okay, so like some when people say, I'm going to go to Leavenworth. I'm going to go to Leavenworth. We have like right? Spokane and Green Bluff at yeah. U of I, yeah. <laughs> they go see some pumpkins and get my cider at Leavenworth. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a thing. Um, so some people are devoted to their pumpkin spice lattes. Yeah. Um, like Tim. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to start this, man. Okay. Just for you. Uh, the picture of devotion we get in Proverbs is actually not new to the Bible. Uh, it's a hyperlink back to uh, what's known as the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy. Um, so Deuteronomy, wow, that was more reaction than U of I. Okay. Um, yeah, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus says something like that. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and buy, bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So notice the similar language to the Proverbs text. Yeah. Putting commandments on our hearts. Binding the commands like close to our bodies. Mm -hmm. And teaching the commands to the next generation. The picture of devotion painted in both texts is that the Israelites cling so tightly to God that it shapes their identity. So ever since fourth grade, uh, I had wanted to be a teacher. Um, I wanted to be a fourth grade teacher in fourth grade, fifth grade teacher in fifth grade, middle school teacher in middle school. It's ironic that I'm like here at college still. <laughs> um, and so when I came to U of I, like my whole future was planned around the idea of becoming a teacher. 
Um, my plan was to graduate, go down to Boise, um, which is in Idaho, uh, teach for 40 years. And then when a student walked in and said, hey, you had my grandparent as a teacher, I would like retire the next day. Like I wouldn't come back, you know. Um, and then my sophomore year, God started to poke at my identity. Um, Jessica actually was the first one to like be all like, hey, have you thought about the Pi Alpha internship? Um, and I found myself saying, God, I will give you my entire life. Just let me hold on to my career. And I'm not saying, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying anything about against teaching. We need Jesus followers as teachers. Um, so much. But are we holding on to our career in God? We can be a teacher and still have career as an idol. Are we surrendering? What little piece of your heart are you keeping from God? My devotion to teaching became idolatry. But the answer was to choose devotion to God above my devotion to other things. Jessica, your turn. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, let's read the next set of verses. So we're going to read verse 5 and 6 now, okay? This is maybe the familiar one, right? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So has anyone seen this verse on the cover of a discount journal at Ross or like a coffee mug? Does anyone have one here that has this verse on it, on like your pretty journal? Oh, woo! I wish I, yes! I wish I had, like, a gift card to give you because, like, that would have been perfect. You win! Yes, okay. So I think sometimes this is one of those verses that because of just, like, American marketing, it can feel a little, like, familiar or cliche, but this is, like, such a rich verse. So on our staff team, we often reference this book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And there's a famous illustration that looks like this. If you can either snap a picture or write it down in your notes real quick. But the basic picture of this is that on a team, if you have the absence of trust, that's going to lead to a fear of conflict. The fear of conflict is going to lead to a lack of commitment. A lack of commitment is going to lead to an avoidance of accountability. And finally, that leads to an inattention to results. But you see that bottom layer there? an absence of trust. Have you guys been a part of like a group project or like a workplace or something where the team members didn't trust each other? Group project, <laughs> right? We probably all have that story, right? Okay, it's stressful, it's dysfunctional, you can't get anything done. Um, I'm super blessed, our team at U of I is really healthy. Um, we have a lot of history together. We have been intentional to like understand each other's personalities and our strengths and weaknesses. Um, we can ask, we do ask each other for help all the time, but that relational trust also means that we have permission to call each other out when we have poo-poo attitudes or when we need to like push back on each other's ideas. And overall, we just have permission to create conflict with one another. Well, like healthy conflict. Good conflict. Good conflict. Yeah. Right? So have you ever thought about yourself and God as a team? One of the amazing things about life under Jesus' discipleship is that see, he sees you and him as a team working together to build a future. 
to build your wholeness. He wants to partner with you to bring his kingdom. But if you do not believe that God is good and kind and working for the greatest good in your life, you are not going to allow God to bring conflict into your life or accountability into your life. The team that's you plus Jesus is going to become stunted and ineffective. Like without trust, you will not invite Jesus to push back on your dating relationships or your entertainment choices, your job options. You won't allow seasons of disappointment to mature you. You'll get disillusioned. So what's the benefit if we can have this trusting foundation of God in you as a team? <clears throat> well, the verse says, verse 6, it says, he will make your paths straight. So, okay, here's where Proverbs is tricky. Proverbs does not, it's not formulas, and they're not promises. So this verse is actually not promising an obstacle-free life. <clears throat> so I was trying to think about how to explain this, and I think it's a little bit more like this. How many of you have done the drive between Ellensburg and Leavenworth over Blewett Pass? Okay? It's kind of a nasty drive, right? It is two lanes. It is twisty and curvy. There are, like, semi-trucks booking up it, and there's, like, deer. I remember um, I tried to take my core when I was a student at Central on, like, a fun Leavenworth day, and we hit a patch, like, the car behind me hit a patch of ice and, like, did, like, donuts over two lanes of traffic and, like, thank the Lord no one was hurt, but it was scary, okay? I don't like driving on highways like that. It's stressful. A life without trust in God is like driving that two-lane highway. There's just more peril involved, okay? It's exhausting to drive that kind of life. So contrast that to a wide open stretch of like I-90, right? Low traffic day, it's a straight stretch, okay? It's more restful to drive that kind of life. And when we trust God, we're invited to delight in the road trip. You can rest instead of white knuckling your way through life on the steering wheel. So when I ask you the question, in what parts of your life do you feel like you're white knuckling your life? Okay, how might God be asking you to trust him so that he can give you that blessing of making your path straight. So a good example from real life about trusting and submitting and straight paths. Um, also like Jeremy, I also had a fear of trusting God with my future. I think that's a pretty normal college student fear. <laughs> How many have a fear about trusting their God with their future? Probably most of us, okay? But here's the thing. Was I afraid that God was going to send me away to like some scary foreign country? Was I afraid that God was going to make me do something adventurous and hard for the kingdom of God? No. You know what I was afraid of? I was afraid that God was going to give me an office job in a gray-walled cubicle. I thought that because I wanted to be a missionary, I thought God was going to say no just to make me grow. And it sounds stupid when I say it now, but I was so convinced that God's number one goal in life was to make me horrible holy through like miserable suffering did god give me the personality to do excel charts all day long no no, no. did he make your wife to do that yes he totally oh. did hallelujah yeah. oh <laughs> praise jesus dorothy helped all of us with our taxes <laughs> and excel charts no okay my misunderstanding of god's character affected my ability to trust and submit to him about my future he had to start by rectifying my view of him before his will was revealed for my life. 
Okay, so it starts with that. Let's let's go to back to the verse. What's next? Yeah. Okay. Uh, just really quick, how are we doing? We've talked a lot about a lot of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Energy. Great. Do we need to do? Yeah. Do we need to do, do we, we need to do the silly teacher thing? <laughs> okay. I don't. I. Okay. I don't, I'm getting mixed signals. What? Yeah. To get. Okay. Great. Okay. Perfect. Oh wow. Thanks, Kath. <laughs> Love you yeah. too. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Wow. I, I feel like the prettiest girl at prom. Okay. It's late. We're getting silly. Oh dear. Yeah, we're doing great. <laughs> okay. Hey, do not Proverbs three seven. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Good. We need the third posture we need is we need humility. Do not be wise in your own eyes. If there were ever a verse that was written for me, that would be it. Oh, my goodness. I love being wise in my own eyes. I love being seen as someone with wisdom. I love going on monologues and soapboxes <laughs> about important things and non-important things and things I think are important but are not actually important. In my freshman year, my core call them life groups at U of I. We're weird. Um, my core love to talk about deep and intellectually like rich theology. At like one point, we love talking so much, we even suggested meeting two nights a week just to talk more. But I remember there was this one night, uh, there was a non-Christian who was coming to our life group and he was wrestling with a lot of things like homosexuality in the Bible. He was also wrestling with, is truth subjective or objective? Is truth what we make it, or is there like something outside of us that defines truth? And our life group was wise in our own eyes. We laid out correct theology. We broke it down for him. We had analogy after analogy after analogy, soapbox after soapbox. But we missed the question behind the question, right? Like, his question about, like, subjective reality versus objective reality was really, what does me believing in the Bible mean for my family? Are they going to go to hell? That's what he was asking. And at the end of the night, the guy said, I don't think I want to follow Jesus. We were so caught up in giving our right answers that we missed what God was doing. And I, I don't want to badmouth my core group. I love those guys to death. They're wonderful. And we so deeply wanted to hold on to biblical integrity, and that's so important. But we had blind spots. Here's the tricky thing about pride. Um, and this thing, like, is it's terrifying to me. Uh, I think this is Proverbs 9.13. says, the woman named Folly is brash. She is ignorant. Oh, I don't have a slide for this, but 9.13. Folly is brash. She is ignorant. And here's the kicker. She doesn't know it. Okay. I want to give a contrast to that life group story. My first year on staff, I met this guy. I, I knew him a little bit during my student teaching. He was at the high school that I was student teaching at. His name's Kyle. 
oh my gosh, I love Kyle. Um, he's a non-Christian, and he came in with like really similar questions. Is truth subjective or objective? What do we do with homosexuality in the Bible? How do we deal with religion when people have abused it? And the Holy Spirit, praise Jesus, helped me hold my tongue. Um, and instead of giving my answers, I asked questions, and I got to know him. Um, and I didn't shy away from the truth, but I let the Holy Spirit bring the truth on his time and not mine. And now we have been meeting for four and a half years. Um, and it's so cool. I love the guy. We geek out about, like, nerdy fantasy books. Um, and, and we have become friends. And guess what? He is so close to following Jesus. He, like, came to church for the first time in, like, six or seven years, like, just a few weeks ago. It was so cool. Humility led to friendship and, like, something that is life-giving, and it led to joy. It led uh, to, at the end of that verse, it says, sorry, it says, it led to health to your body and nourishment to your bones. That is what humility leads to. And this guy is discovering Jesus in a new way. And this isn't to toot my own horn, but it's to, like, brag on the Holy Spirit, you know? So we need humility. That's a good story, Jeremy. Woo! So idolatry. We've got devotion, trust and submission, humility. Let's tackle the last little section of this passage. So verses 11 and 12 says this. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Didn't, oh, ah, do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. So we need the Lord's discipline to rid us of our idolatry. So, um, man, this idea of discipline. I'm just going to tell you all straight up, parenting is like, whoa. It is so intense. Um, the parents in here get it. Figuring out how to discipline your children is just like this overwhelming conundrum. And it just, it's a really scary thing to watch your children play and role play, like with Barbies or like dolls or trucks or whatever, role play discipline. <clears throat> because you know that they're kind of like reflecting what they've been learning. So, you know, imagine Miriam's downstairs <coughs> with her Barbies and she's playing and she's like, the, the mommy Barbie's like, honey, it's time to get in the car now. And then like the baby doll's like, no, not going to do it. And then the mommy was like, yes, you will. And then the, ba the baby doll's like, no, I'm not gonna. And mommy says, well, if you don't, I'm gonna take away all your candy for a week. No TV. And like, you know, she just goes on and on. You're like, whoa, do I do that? Am I that harsh? Like, they're way harsher with their Barbies sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's like, you get a consequence and you get a consequence and you get a consequence. It's like <laughs> Oprah. <laughs> it's like Oprah. Everybody gets a consequence. <laughs> okay. How your parents parented you is going to affect how you see God's discipline. We tend to think of God's discipline as punishing and angry. We think God is spanking us in anger and saying, you're bad and shaming us. And I think sometimes this comes from a misunderstanding of God's relationship to Israel in the Old Testament. 
So in the Old Testament, they had a covenant, which is this really clear two-way agreement. And there were terms. If you worship idols, then you will get conquered by other nations. There were clear consequences. But here's the part that we miss. The word for discipline in Hebrew is musar. Looks like this. And it's translated as discipline into English. But in the, like, Hebrew, like, vernacular as they're talking, it's actually more of, like, instruction or correction, um, a conversation. Um, one of the commentaries said, let us reason together. This idea of training. The picture is far more instructive than it is punitive. It's relational. It's restorative. And the goal is to bring us back to him, not to punish so what does this look like in our lives? <laughs> um, an example that comes to my mind is how my campus pastor um, at the time was Michael Mowry, and he was a con- yeah, Michael. He was a conduit for God's discipline in my life through his really intentional questions. So there was a time when Michael called Derek and I into his office. We were kind of nervous. <laughs> and he sat us down and in the Michael way that he does, he was like, Derek and Jessica, you know what? You've been dating for a few years now. And, you know, Jessica, you've been talking about how you want to go back to Japan and you want to be a foreign missionary there. And, Derek, you've been talking about how you want to be a band teacher in the United States. And I don't know if you guys know this, but, like, foreign missionary in Japan and band teacher in the United States, that doesn't, like, really work together. So (laughs) he was like, you guys need to figure out your futures because if they don't go together, you guys should probably break up. that was a heavy talk. I did not want to hear that. I did not want to confront the uncomfortable questions. I didn't want to face the possibility of breaking up. We could think of a question like that as God's discipline. It came through Michael's gentle but direct questions. Michael wasn't punishing us by bringing us into his office. He was orienting us toward God and his will for our lives. There's something about relationships that they has its way of just, like, working itself up to the high points in our lives. And we tell the Lord anything but that dating relationship. God's discipline is not about punishing you. It's about reorienting you. And if we want to get idolatry out of our lives, we've got to invite God's correction and his discipline so that we can be shaped into his image. It's actually a really good, freeing, beautiful thing to invite the Lord's instruction and his discipline. So we've got five things here. (coughs) Four things. Four things. Four and a half. Devotion, (laughs) trust and submission, humility and the Lord's discipline. How does this list make your body feel? Think about this list and I want you to, what's happening in your body right now? Are you anxious? Some of you are tired. Okay? So, Some of us might be like, yeah, sure, I'm cool. I'm down with this list. It's all good. But if we really are honest with ourselves, tearing down idols costs us something. Walking the way of wisdom costs Jesus his life. And I think realistically, when Jesus starts to put his finger on stuff, we can react in a few different ways. So we're going to kind of close with some reactions here. Jeremy, what's kind of the first way we might respond to this? Yeah, I think the first way is rebellion, right? Is anyone here the rebellious child? Like, raise your hand. Yeah, like, I I will, like, if there's a rule, I will, like, push it to the absolute boundary. (coughs) Yeah? 
Okay. This is not me. Sorry, that's not to make you guys feel isolated. But, um, I, like, I'm pretty sure, like, the mo I'm such a rule follower. I'm pretty sure the most strife I've, like, given my parents was learning how to drive and deciding to become a pastor. <laughs> so, you know, like, pretty edgy. Um, that being said, I am quietly stubborn. And quiet stubbornness is just another word for rebellion. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Jessica, do you? <laughs> I have the Jessica. Do you remember Jessica? Do you remember that staff conference that one time? Yeah, um, where like the U of I staff was praying for me to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and everyone felt like God was present and doing something, and I was just like. Mm -hmm. I was like so caught up in my head uh, and I wasn't really opening myself up to God. Um, and Jessica was like, Jeremy, you're being such a stubborn cookie right now. <laughs> you called me out on my poo-poo attitudes. I did. Um, <laughs> it was a mushy, mushy poo-poo. It was a mushy, <laughs> mushy poo-poo. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. That okay. was not in the notes. That was, that was, that was improv. Okay. I'm going to wake you up here. There's okay. okay. Where was I? So you called me a stubborn cookie. I mean, I was so nervous to let go of control to God that I wasn't opening myself up to what God wanted to do in my life. And so I was quietly sitting there stubborn and in all honesty, rebellious. The cost of rebellion is that we close ourselves off to the full life that God has for us. And rebellion looks like a few things. It could look like intentionally choosing the sinful option. It looks like running away from God. Sometimes it looks like cynicism and skepticism. And I have fallen into that trap so many times. It can look like not confessing the sins that we feel trapped in. Or it can look like being a stubborn cookie. Okay. So some of you in here are really anxious right now because you're asking, am I devoted enough? Am I submitted enough? You're racking your mind for all of the things you've confessed and you're going, did I get all the mold off my cheese? Some of you in here, in, you in here are not rebellious, you're perfectionists. So I have always been the kid that wanted to please. My parents just had to look at me with that look of disapproval and I would get in line fast um, I did not want to be the bad kid. How many of you were that kid? Okay. So growing up in church, I was taught that it was wise to, like, get up early and read your Bible and have a God time. I'm one of four girls, and my oldest sister and I are less than one year apart. And we had rooms in the basement of our house that were side by side. So it was, like, my room, Angela's room, there was a wall between us, and then both of us had windows that faced outside. So every morning when I would wake up, I could see that Angela's light was already on before me. And I knew that she was up earlier than me, reading and praying and studying the Bible. And then at night, I would see when her light would turn off after mine. And I knew that she was up late reading and praying. And it seemed like no matter how hard I tried, I was not enough. My wise habit of having a God time was not producing freedom in me. It was producing anxiety because it was coming from a place of legalism and comparison and insecurity and working hard enough-isms. Was I praying enough? Was I reading enough? Was I submitted enough? 
can any of you relate to working really, really hard at being wise? I was operating as if God was going to be pleased by my religious performance. And if you believe that God is a hard-to-please parent and you're trying to be wise, not for the life of Um, not for the life that it's bringing, but to avoid disappointing God. It will not lead to freedom. It leads to slavery. It leads to empty religion and control and workaholism. And that is just as broken as outward rebellion. I really believe that tonight Jesus wants to free some of you from that. He wants to free you from the am I enough. Jesus did that for you. He can free us from that. That's good. That's so good. Okay, third response. And that is apathy. I am a I'm a big culprit of complacency when it comes to technology. Um, as I wrote this message, like six weeks ago, five weeks ago, something like that, I had on my Google Chrome some a uh, little button that said update. And it had been there for like three weeks before that. And and now my Google Chrome is updated. But notice how I said my Google Chrome is updated. I didn't update it. I don't know what happened, you know. It wasn't my choice. Um, I have this like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it um, type of mentality when it comes to technology. I'm still probably a few operating systems behind. And this drives Derek up the wall. Um, But... I'm happy with the things, the way things are, so I don't update anything. And the only time I'm shaken from my technological apathy is when it serves my needs. So Dorothy um, has been bugging me, or bugging us for months to get a new Chromecast for our TV. Um, There would be times where, like, it didn't automatically connect to our phones, and Dorothy would get frustrated. But like eventually connect you know like it was good um and <laughs> however dorothy and i recently got apple tv uh and apple tv doesn't cast to chromecast and so we got a new chromecast um <laughs> so here's my question in what ways do we treat god like i treat technology we are happy to go to church and occasionally read our bible and we kind of have a bit, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. And, like, satisfaction isn't bad, right? If we're a perfectionist, one of the most important phrases we need to hear is good enough. But apathy is when satisfaction turns selfish. It is gr- only growing, changing, responding when it is convenient to us. It is showing up to a Tuesday night or a core group and not really, like, being there mentally. You're there physically. And I feel this. Like, there are days where I'm like, oh, okay, I just, I have to be there. You know, I don't want to, but I have to. But that is apathy. Um, so here, here are the three kind of responses. Rebellion, perfectionism, and apathy. And all three of these are something that I think we we think that God wants to free us from tonight. Because here's the thing, guys. If we leave this weekend 
with only the mission of go and be wise, we are going to fail that mission. Because we need to let the Holy Spirit deal with the sin in our hearts first. Because if we don't do that, then the message of wisdom will actually just lead to death. Because the disease in our heart will react against wisdom and produce within us rebellion, perfectionism, and apathy. We need to make space for the Holy Spirit to heal our hearts. Mm -hmm. And then we can wholeheartedly follow the lead. Good. I'm going to have the worship team come up while, while we wrap up here. I just want us to end on a note of hope here. Because I know that this is a little bit heavy to talk about like our heart attitudes and our sin attitudes. When we read the book of Proverbs as a set of standards to achieve, it just kind of feels like heavy and like, ugh, okay? Because I know I am never going to be and live up to the book of Proverbs, right? And this is where we go back to the gospel. This is where the gospel is the solving our problem here, okay? Because Jesus, like Jeremy said last night, Jesus is the embodiment of Lady Wisdom. This is such good news. How many of you have seen Top Gun Maverick? Okay, I just really love this movie. I know I'm like such a millennial in this way, but okay, right? The plot of this movie is there's these elite pilots, and in front of them is what seems to be an impossible mission. The flight deck is dangerously low. The terrain is treacherous. The G-forces are like inhumane, and everyone is saying it can't be done. But then Maverick sneaks off to the runway, and he like steals a jet, and he flies the course, not just in the suggested like three minutes, but like less. And because Tom Cruise can fly the course perfectly, he paves the way for the rest of the Navy officers to fly it as well. Romans 5.19 says, because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will become righteous. Jesus walked the way of wisdom perfectly in our place. So the invitation of the gospel tonight, it's an invitation to repent of our idolatry. And then it's to let Jesus' perfection cover your imperfection. That is so freeing. That is such good news. And that frees us to respond to the call to follow me and be transformed. So tonight... We're going to spend some time processing with the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing some worship songs. We're going to pray with one another. So there's some questions we're going to put up. It says, what are the high places of your life that haven't been submitted to Jesus yet? You can take a picture if you don't want to write all this down. Do you tend to respond with rebellion, perfectionism, or apathy? How are you going to respond to the call to repent and believe and transform and let Jesus do it for you? And what about those attitudes, devotion? Maybe it's trust and wrestling tonight with God's character. Like, is he good? Does he know what's best for me? Is it humility, loving God's discipline? To close, I want to read the promise that this passage ends with. Proverbs 3, 13 through 18, and then we're going to worship. It says this. It says, blessed are those who find wisdom, who gain understanding. She is more profitable than silver. She yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, 
and her left hand is full of riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. I think some of us here need peace tonight, guys. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and those who hold fast to her will be blessed. Let's respond in worship tonight.